All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Jake Dunlap Show. We are very excited that you joined us. If you haven't tuned in, this is the show where we talk to celebrities, thought, and industry leaders to really discover their journey to success. I am super excited that you're joining us. This show is like no other, I can promise you that. You might laugh, you might cry, but you will definitely leave inspired and gain a whole new level of insight into those people that you follow, love, and admire. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. This week's conversation with our guests might be short uh, because I have to spend so much time talking about all of her incredible achievements. All right. Just get ready for this. Number one startup coach in the world. Dang. Top 30 global gurus for startups. And here I was. I thought I was like a startup, you know, guru. I got I to gotta work on this. Um, featured in like a bazillion magazines. Featured on BBC, Bloomberg, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. She's also worked with some of the most innovative, you know, forward-thinking brands. Venmo, DraftKings, Microsoft, Google, Pfizer, Dell, IBM, Calvin Klein. And is the author from Startup to Grown Up, Grow Your Leadership to Grow Your Business. Uh, and one thing people may not know is that this week's guest is also an amateur rapper, okay, which we will potentially talk about and link to as well. Uh, so please join me in welcoming the coaching connoisseur and startup savant, Alyssa Cohn. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jake. What a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> I do have the link for your amateur rapping, by the way. That is, I, uh, I, I'm so excited to talk to you about that. <laughs> it's not the thing that comes up all the time, but it's a part of my portfolio. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, we, we, we do business and we want to work with people and we all have our things. So I also am a, a rap connoisseur. So maybe we can get into the, the 90s and 2000s rap at some point here, too. Fun. So I love it. Um, so let's go back. So again, so for you, you know, obviously, if you fast forward, you've worked with all these amazing companies, you know, running a really successful coaching business and now author, you kind of rewind, um, born in Western Massachusetts. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, we'd like to tell the stories of how people got to where they're at. There's all these really cool, interesting things that happened that shape us. And so uh, we're going to go, we're going to start there. So you know, born in Western Mass, you know, what are some of the things that you remember, you know, about growing up, you know, whether it was, you know, influence from your parents, environment, you know, sports or things you're involved with? What are some of like, you know, your early memories around, you know, call it, you know, business work or, or entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I was born in Holliston, Mass, which is uh, the town next door to Hopkinton, which is where the Boston Marathon starts. And it was a very, it's not so rural now, but it was a very rural town. And my parents said about me that when I was four years old, I wanted my own apartment. And so that was probably <laughs> true. It kind of gives you a sense of my, you know, spicy nature, even as a my young My four-year-old daughter probably has said something similar. So <laughs> if I, I guess like I can see what women. I'm going to get myself into now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I don't know, I mean... I had a very, very traditional upbringing with, um, you know, like parents who worked and I don't think that they were that passionate about their jobs, but it was sort of was like what you did to then take the family on vacation and whatnot. But I was always a seeker for whatever reason. I was always interested in like why and what people do what they do. And I was interested in people dynamics. And actually I was got involved with a youth group and, um, this youth group is called Young Judea, and they said about the youth group, 
we're peer led. Well, I didn't know what that meant. However, what it meant was what I was doing was I was facilitating discussions for the other 13 year olds and 14 year olds and 15 year olds around me. So it was not the kind of a youth group we went to the movies and went bowling. Yeah. It was the it was the kind of youth group where we had intellectual conversations, which I was facilitating. So I loved that, and it made me feel like I fit in. And in some ways, that was what like what age you know, was this? Do you remember? remember I was like 13, how, 13, 13 and, okay. and, and and through high school. Yeah. So I mean, in that sense, if you show me the girl, and I'll show you the woman. I, I really felt like that was my sweet spot, and I was very much like, or I was homegrown. I was not trained, but I and the other kids in the youth group were just figuring out how to facilitate conversations. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then, you know, what kind of you, you ended up going to, to BU um, and a lot of people at BU major in communications, right? It's kind of like known for that. Yeah. Right. That's the big Definitely. thing. I'm, I'm a Howard Stern listener. He also went to BU. I think he, that's went, right. he majored in, co- in communications, too. Um, how did you pick? I mean, Boston, like what was it about BU? You know, obviously you have to be a good student to, to kind of get there. What was it about Boston that you know, kind of drew you to it and, you know, and, and communications, too? Yeah, I um I had a very traditional upbringing and you know it was like very sheltered in a way so it felt like oh well my parents went to Boston my mom went to Boston University my brother went to Boston University so like I guess yeah. I'll go to Boston University you know that's kind of how it felt and I really wanted to be a, an English major and my parents said you can't be an English major what are you going to do I love to read I should say that I love to read I love sure. to write yeah and they were like no you can't do that what are you going to do with that so we all decided that journalism was like yeah same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right there you, go. you know yeah so it wasn't like that was my meant to it was not my true love from the point of view of a major but look as to your point boston university had an outstanding comm school and i actually did learn a lot and, and from journalism and then i also got to do this program at oxford because i get got to do a little minor in british literature and um the, so that all together kind of satisfied me but back to the point about like how what was I like I I was always a seeker I always wanted to know why I always and there's a discontent that comes from that like oh maybe I shouldn't be doing this I should be doing something else and pushing myself really hard and like pushing the boundaries of things so if you take that and you apply it to journalism it was also like my curiosity could could be cultivated there because in journalism you're asking people questions and you're learning yeah. about new things and then you're trying to figure out how to communicate them effectively yeah, I love that. And then, and then, how did you decide then? Like, I you know, I, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of different majors where I think comms is definitely one of them. Marketing, there's there's a few where it's like, and then I go and do something completely different, right? Um, <laughs> and for you, I know, I mean, you kind of, I mean, I don't know if it was originally after, but I know you kind of then went into that like big four world, um, you know, as a part of that. So, what was it, I guess, that made you want to get into? that part of it, you know, get into yeah. the, the PWCs of the world. Yeah. Well, after, um, after journalism school, um, I actually joined the nonprofit world and I was, I was the, um, a manager, I was a very young manager of a, a group that worked with international exchange students. And then I became the chief of staff to the provost at Northeastern. And so through that experience, I actually, again, was facilitating disputes and issues among faculty and parents and i also this is right out of college this is my second job out of college yeah it's to this day it's not clear why the provost hired me i was like so young he said but he actually said to me it was later 
that I wrote him this follow-up. By the way, everyone write follow-up notes because I wrote a follow-up note that articulated what we talked about and articulated kind of how, how I was, you know, fit for this role. And for whatever reason, he hired me. And so at a very young age, I was doing things like working with the dean. I was running the dean council. We did strategic planning. And at some point, the provost said, you can't manage faculty because they have tenure. And I thought, huh, even I was pretty young, but like, huh, it can't be people only do what you want them to do in service of the organization, because if you don't, they'll, you'll fire them. It can't be. So that's when I got it in my head. I wanted to go to business school and study why do people do things that you want them to do in service of the organization or sadly not? Like what, what aligns yeah. with the organization? So I went up to, to Cornell to think about that and study that. Right. Okay, cool. But, All right. So yeah, you start to like find your passion. Yeah, th- yeah. You kind of start to like find this like, okay, like this is fun. Like I like this kind of people dynamics, et cetera. And right. obviously explains a lot of like what you're up to now. So then you go to Cornell, MBA there, strategy and org development. Um, yeah. It's probably a it pretty. Actually, it was actually strategy and accounting. Oh, accounting. Okay. Yeah, I know. Strategy and accounting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There you go. And now, yeah. now, hence, now the PwC makes more sense, right, as a part of that. Right. Exactly. Well, the thing is that when I got to business school, first of all, I got all turned around because success at business school is not about people and org design. It is about strategy and finance and the hard skills. And so I was one of the few women in at Cornell, and I had to achieve, and I had to, again, push myself, and I had to be the best at everything. So I really focused on those things, which were really hard for me. But also, Cornell had outstanding accounting faculty, outstanding. And as a journalism major, the idea of like learning the business, the, the language of business was so exciting to me, and it felt so elegant. And I was like, oh, I really understand it. So that's how I ended up at PwC after business school in their so-called fast track to partner program. Okay, cool. All right, that's awesome. All right, so you go to PwC. So, so at what point, I mean, I guess like, and this is, you know, we're getting into like, you know, call it like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, what, like, I guess, like, how did you start to go down this road, right? You know, can, then you go to corporate alumni, then you move into a CFO role. Um, you're kind of starting to like figure it out. And then, I mean, pretty quickly, you know, I mean, after, you know, kind of starting that corporate ladder, the MBA, that kind of like the MBA game plan, which is very classic. You go to the big four so for true. two years, right? Then you go... Then you go like somewhere else. Um, and then again, you're starting to kind of climb this ladder and then you kind of decide to do your own thing. You know, so like what was it that you, I guess, like either saw or you're like, this is cool, but I want to, you know, branch out a little bit. Yeah. So I was at PwC for about two years. And by the way, an outstanding firm that was a fantastic experience And nonetheless, I woke up one morning and I thought, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. Yeah, I saw that. And 18 hours later, I was rushed to the emergency room. And so I just knew, I gave myself the flu, right? Like strong mind. And I just thought, I can't do this. No mas. I'd rather be a waitress. Like figure out what I want to do. And that's where I was like, what am I going to do? Because I knew I wanted to make a difference and have the work of my hands matter. That was like what was running through my head. But what does that really mean, especially when you're down for the count with like a high fever? What are you going to do? So I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I looked into a whole bunch of stuff and I went to a conference and I met a coach and I was like, Rah! like violins played like that yeah. is what I want to do. So I how followed did they describe around. it to you? I'm curious, like how did they like describe like coaching to you? 
You know, like what, what, and when, what do you remember? Like, was there like a part of it where you're like this thing, you know, like this sounds yeah. awesome. What happened was it was Cheryl Richardson and she, they said, Cheryl Richardson is now going to, I was volunteering for this conference. Cheryl Richardson is now going to speak to the volunteers. And I thought, huh, can I leave? Is this mandatory? Like, am I allowed to leave? But nonetheless, I didn't leave. And there she was. And I don't know what she said, but she was so dynamic. I thought, oh, what is that? I want to do that. And then I followed her on the conference. And in one of the sessions, like 500 people were there. She said, who wants to stand up right now and get live coaching? And I thought, what's going to happen? And someone stood up and got live coaching for 20 minutes. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I could never do that. But I also thought I could do that. Like, I just yeah. saw myself in that. So it's not like anyone described it to me. I just saw it. And I felt that is what my thing is. I love that. That reminds me of the first time I saw New York City. Like I just you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so I had never been to New York until I was like 30 years old. And like Ooh. that was my I saw it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And then I moved there like a year and a half later and was there for six totally. years before before moving to Austin. I love New York. Um, but I think we have those moments where whether it's a city or a, a calling where there's those things. And I think for anybody listening to this. If you are struggling or you know maybe you're laid off or maybe you're you know going through a, a career time, you've had moments like this you know and and try to think of those things because I feel like so often we kind of float in the world that we're in, and so I think it's such a powerful story like you kind of saw it it didn't manifest immediately, and that's okay sometimes it takes a little time right two years et cetera yes. so so that that's yes. cool so you see this you're like, I like this, I'm into this um and then, it, you know, it, and then obviously you kind of continue to work, you know, you know, kind of continuing to do these things. So like at what point were you like, all right, I'm going to be an aunt, you know, I'm going to go out and, and, I, and I, the other thing I'll kind of caveat, what I love is like the time that you're, you're going to start your thing is like early 2000s, right? And like entrepreneurship or starting your own company was not cool, right? It wasn't like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. That's so amazing. Like, like that didn't even exist then. It's like, I, I'm going to start a, biz- a business. Right. And certainly solopreneurs didn't exist. That wasn't like a thing either. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, no one was talking about that. So, right, to your point, I mean, I discovered coaching like, well, and then I asked her what I should do. And she said, take coach training, which I did. But I was super young. I did not want to be a life coach. I wanted to be an executive coach. But I'd never been an executive. So I was like, okay. So, you know, I needed to do something else. So that's when I got the, the... the different roles inside of the startups. And I was the head of strategy of one startup and I was the CFO of another startup. And that got me at a very early age, significant leadership experience as you get in startups. And so that made sense to to join then. And then, as you know, the startup world imploded. (laughs) But in the meantime, I was taking coach training. And so when the startup world imploded and then the company I was with offered me a job in San Francisco, I just thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to become a coach now. And it was like, I would have, it's sort of like my, this is my moment. And if, if I'd missed the moment, I would have gotten another job. Actually, my coach at the time said, you keep getting offered that same job. You will get offered that same job again. You said you wanted to do your own thing. The time Hmm. is now. And that was very wise. And I followed that advice. I love that. So it's interesting. I am going to screen, I'm going to do this. I've got a really good friend of mine. Um, she just got coaching certified, kid you not, last week. And she had done consulting with us freelance for years, came back, you know, had had, a, you know, had, had one with another one on the way now. And we're talking, and I swear I said the exact same th- thing to her on Tuesday. She, <laughs> so she was like, 
she's like, yeah, Jake, she's like, you know, I just did this. You know, I'm just you know, debating about, I'm like, you remember that company that you started when I first met you like four years ago and then you kind of let this other job creep in and you didn't? Like, you're doing it again. Like, this is your thing. Like, go forth. And so I think, you know, sometimes that can be helpful. Um, you know, it's not be prying or nosy, but like just sh- shining a mirror sometimes when people are doing that. So I will clip this for her too and hopefully gives her inspiration to keep keep moving forward. That's great. Yeah. So you're getting into it now. So early on, again, bubble bursts, you're out on your own. It's probably very tempting to go back in-house and, you know, you had this kind of strong presence. Like, what are some of the early, like, what are some of the, you know, kind of like early learnings, you know, kind of first five, 10 years of building the company, you know, look, I'm in year nine now of of my organization. So, you know, I can definitely, you know, there's, there's like these different phases that kind of pop up about like, you know, these, these things, like what are some of the early memories yeah. you have about kind of scaling the business or, or not even scaling it, but really just kind of finding out what the business was going to be. Totally. Well, you to your point, like the, the business has different phases. So I would say for the first five years, I did not draw a calm breath because no one taught me how to be an entrepreneur. I just had to figure it out. And I had a lot of faith in myself that I could do it. And that also made me hustle every day. And so I was networking and networking, and I did things like, um, yeah, it's like I, I actually put together a vision board. And my vision board was like, this is my ideal life, and this is what I want to have. And that's a very coaching. These thing were to popping. Do. Everyone was vision boarding about this time. This is like, <laughs> I know exactly. This is the time of the secret. This is like, yes, this, like yes. mid, to, mid 2000s, 2005 right. to 2010. It's like, you get your that's vision right. board, you, put, you write yourself that million dollar check, and you. You know, I'll link to the secret for anyone. Like, it's a very yes. interesting concept. But yeah, I mean, yes, look, you but... did manifest the flu, though. So, like, you I, do yeah, have a track record of manifestation here. <laughs> I'm a very strong manifester. It's so true. That's right. It's so true. But in this case, I just want to be clear. Like, the vision board was super helpful because there was a day. So, how do you get your first clients? Well, I don't really know. And, like, it's sort of scary. And then I would coach all my friends. And then I'd have to coach strangers. And then I my gym in February of some year was having a vendor fair. So I was like, I'm going to go down and be a vendor in the vendor fair. So that meant like I had to like print out flyers and have people sign up. And I did not feel like doing that. And so I went to some like, you know, FedEx place or whatever to have them printed out. It was sleeting. It was freezing cold, five o'clock at night, the worst time in the winter, sleeting. And I had to go down to this gym, the last thing I wanted to do. And I used my vision board to motivate me. Because the truth is, I my ideal it. life was not February, sleeting, going, you know, getting these flyers printed and going down to this vendor fair. That's not my ideal life. My ideal life was having the life of my dreams on the vision board. And I had to slog through the snow to get there. And so, by God, I slogged through the snow to get there. I think that's what's powerful is when you have this idea of like, it's not about this boring, terrible obstacle that I'm, that's in the way right now. It is about this bigger picture. And you, when you show yourself the bigger picture, you can do hard things to get there. And that's where I got my first paying client, Rick Samuels. Thank you, Rick. I love that. You are. Yeah, you, Rick, I, yeah, I remember ours. Like, uh, I'll tell you a quick, a quick story. It's not actually a very good story in retrospect. Um, our first client was company Splash. I remember the check was like $3,000 or something like that. And... Um, I saw this guy like three years later at a conference. Maybe it's like three or four years later. And he's like, Jake, I think we'd, we'd had a few 
glasses of wine, maybe. He's like, Jake, I'm going to be honest. It wasn't that good. He's <laughs> like, like, I think you, you signed up too many people. You spread yourself too thin. And I'm like, yeah, yeah look, if you, want, if you want the refund, I'm keeping the check. But like, if you want the refund, like, I, I get it. Uh, so we've, we've, we've plugged the whole sense. But um, that good. was my first one. I, I remember it, you know. At the time, I remembered it very fondly, and then three or four years later, not not so much. So, so <laughs> I love that because again, like the vision board wasn't I'm sleeting, but it did give you the motivation to just say, "Hey, I'm going to put in that little bit of extra." Would have been really easy for you to just not do that, right? And just say, ah, been... "Well, what what's the likelihood I'm going to find someone here, exactly. etc." Um, yeah, it was a very high cost. I mean, it was like really, really, really yucky out, and I it was really dark, and I just did not like this feeling of inertia. I don't feel like doing it. And that's the point. It's like you have to do hard things and do things you don't feel like doing. You know, I tell my clients and myself all the time, successful people do what unsuccessful people don't feel like doing. And when you tell yourself that, it turns into, okay, so let's do them. Let's get motivated to do this thing, which is kind of yeah. boring. I love that. Yeah, I, I really do. I think that that's like such a great motivation. So, so at what point, you know, is there a point where, you know, the, the ball really starts to roll for you, you know, and then how do you, I mean, there's again, now, you know, kind of known for this startup world, and then we'll get into kind of current, like, wh- where did I mean, you, like you said, you'd went and worked at some startups early on, um, you know, then went to do coaching. At what point were you like, this startup thing is my jam, you know, like, like yeah. w- at what point was you know did you kind of realize that and what point did you realize like this is the path you know I'm going down Yeah so the first answer is my career started really taking off more when I I was doing a bunch of different things including I was obsessed with um helping people do a better job managing their money like like the, from a belief system perspective not like the mechanics right. of it but like helping them get over their money obstacles so I was teaching an adult ed and stuff like that and one day one of my colleagues said to me I was about to go to this this class I was teaching adult ed and she said um and she called me up and she said hey what are you up to I said hey I, I gotta go to this class I'm, I'm running late she said oh what class oh, it's this class about money blocks I'm running late I really gotta go oh how long you taught that I really got to go. And she said, you know, one of my clients is looking to have someone to teach in their business acumen program. I was like, oh, I'm free. I got plenty of time. (laughs) So that's what happened because I knew that once I taught in the business acumen program, because I'm a CPA um, at EMC, I'd work my way into the leadership curriculum, which is exactly what I did. So I began teaching inside of EMC University and then I began coaching year and coaching inside of that and I had five amazing years. I had 14 years overall with EMC uh, that I worked with them until they got bought by Dell. But I spent like my first five years there almost like walking on air. I couldn't believe like how they let me do this. And it was like the best thing ever. I was doing so many things. And it was after that that I moved to New York. And with so much success and confidence from my experience in so many aspects of EMC, including helping yeah. them integrate 24 integrations, 24 M&A inside of the company in a two-year period, um, I moved to New York and we were, we were building a startup ecosystem here. And yeah. I wanted to be a part of that. What year was that? And I remember in my startup experience, it was, um, it was about from now 14 years ago. What? How long ago was that? That had been like late 2000, 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably around that, 2008, 2009, yeah. yeah. I moved in 2012, so, like the very beginning. And, 
And that was still, you know, like Tumblr had just kind of popped a little yes. bit. Foursquare, yes. Foursquare was starting to pop. Yeah, so I was there Foursquare. a little bit after you, but it was a, it was an awesome time to be in the city. And you know, I'd moved from San Francisco too, so it was just a, a really cool time for those of you who aren't. Gary V kind of talks about this time too. That, that I think he talks a lot about. Like it was a cool time to be in the startup scene in New York. Then, uh, you know, when it, it wasn't the, it wasn't you know a, a, a real sector like it is now. Right, exactly. And actually, uh, Foursquare was my first big client. And uh, the first go. time I met, I met Dennis Crowley. Uh, I walked, pa- I walked in to meet him, and um, he there was a. Bu- I passed a bus stop. And you may remember that he and his co-founder were on a Gap ad, and they were plastered all around the city. So I passed Dennis Crowley in this life-size, massive Gap ad, and then I went into the restaurant to have lunch with him, and that's when we started working together. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, that's a great like first client then, too. And they were probably like early, right? It was like, God, that yeah. was like you had Foursquare, you would check in, and then they created... That's where you lost Foursquare, I feel like. It's like, then they created that two apps. Right, they had Foursquare, and then they had like the check-in. I can't remember what the check-in app was. And then people are like, "Wait, what's this? Like Foursquare's in this?" And it's like, then yes. eventually it, you know, it changed. I remember so, it's the exact okay. I mean, so, yeah, meeting so you're, where they right. said we're going to split the app. I was in that meeting. Were you really? I was. I was. Yeah. I, I think it's just like you know, it's like it was just like I mean, that's what you did. You went and checked in. Like it was just mm-hmm. like. It was the thing. And then it's like, wait, I got to go to this other thing. And now it's just for discovery. I could, you know, it's like, those are those decisions. That's wild that you were in that meeting, though, where you yeah. look back. A good friend of mine, David Greenberger, uh, I don't know if you ever met him and um, another guy, Evan, they were in the sales team uh, and leading part of the sales team then, too. And they talk about that a little bit. So, an interesting time, I'm sure, like that decision. So, when you think about like this time, so you're like, all right, now I'm in this startup scene, I'm in this mix here, too. I'm doing this. And then like, how does the coaching evolve? Like, you know, and if you think about, you know, if you kind of fast forward to today in the book, you know, again, obviously, you know, talking about startup to grown up, um, a lot of this experience of you being in rooms like we just talked about and working with lots of companies, you know, like, what are some of the themes that you started to see, you know, and you were like, hey, this is like, I want to share this at a broader scale versus like just my one-to-one coaching. Yeah. So, I mean, from Foursquare, I started working with a lot of startups, early stage, mid stage, late stage, late stage, and there there were these common themes. One common theme was you have a first time CEO who doesn't quite understand all the meaning, all the ramifications of being a first time CEO. Doesn't realize how important it is about the way he shows up. Doesn't understand how important it is to communicate that vision in his head, not just keep it to himself. And then also the way, you know, he's thinking about running the business and giving feedback to people or not giving feedback to people, shying away from it. All those things kept coming up. I'd go into many situations and I would say, you know, first time clients and I would say, how often do you have meetings of your leadership team? And they would say, what's a leadership team? And I kind of realized like, oh, I need, there's, I wish there were a book that I could just hand you to prevent unforced errors. And I realized there wasn't that book. So I wanted to write that book. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, all right. So you're like, okay, why do I need this leadership meeting in team? And and there's been, you know, there's other books that I think tackle like the meeting side of it, like EOS, right? Or like traction or right. you know, you've got what, what's Vern Harding? Scale up, right? And it kind of tackle this like 
operating system you could call call it um actually that's probably what they would call it um you know what did you see you know kind of as the gap or like the place where you're like look like startups are their own thing you know like what was it for you that you saw like hey this is something that these that they need to know and it's different you know than like a an operating system yeah that's a great question. You know, startups are, it's, are their own thing. And you have a first-time CEO who's doing his own thing, learning on the job, and yet the entry-level position for a startup founder, for an entrepreneur, is leader, is boss. So, like, how can that be that they're supposed to scale so quickly when they have never really had this kind of leadership experience? Also, when you're a startup CEO and a startup founder, your job changes Every six months at first, and then certainly every 18 months, how do you keep up with that rapid change? That is the difference inside a startup. Startups like the Wild West. And there's all the intense ups and downs. When you're at a company, you have good days, you have bad days. That's normal. But when this is your baby, your company, your ups are so high and your downs are so awful. So like recognizing that and dealing with the emotional kind of uh, consequences of that, it's just another element of startups that's so present. I think that's a really great call out, right? And I think you go from being the, the smart person, et cetera, and I, you know, even my own nine years with my own company, I definitely can feel can resonate with that. Where you go from feeling like also like you, you need to have all the answers because you should, you did have to have all the answers because you built the company and you had the vision, to to saying, well, my job actually isn't to have the answers. You know, it's to surround right. myself with people and and around certain topics. You know, you, you can you know you still might be the expert. I actually don't buy in like you know you've got to be the dumbest person in the room to be a CEO. I'm like, well, not really. Like you probably should have like a core competency or something to like do that, but you should hire really smart and talented people to do the things that, that you aren't a superstar or a, a A plus plus on. Um, you know, let's talk, I want to talk about a couple different like specialties of yours in particular that I think are top of mind, at least for me. Um, because I, I think what you talked about there around the emotional part or just like, what does it actually mean to, to grow and to scale and, and what is that going to do to you and how do you do it the right way? Um, you know, you talk about new leader onboarding, right? Which I think is kind of in the same vein. It is uh, baffling, probably the best word to me. It is crazy to me. I, I was very fortunate when I grew up, and maybe at P- in PwC, right? You were part of a, a program. This world where, man, onboarding was long, you know? And it was like, of course, a new leader went through leadership onboarding. You know, I was very fortunate. You know, I was at a company called Career Builder in the 2000s, and I got put through a formal leadership development program. I'm like, and I learned a ton of stuff. I'm like, God, I would have been, I was already didn't think I was like a very good leader early, but like I would have been really bad. <laughs> and and why do you think we've got this obsession with continuing to onboard and not onboarding for frontline employees is at an all-time atrocious low too, but why do you feel like we neglect new leader onboarding? And it's, again, my, my background is on, you know, kind of on the sales, sales and marketing side, but it, it, it's really across the organization. Like, why do you feel like we neglect that? And, and how do you see companies getting it right? Well, I think the reason we neglect that is just a knowledge gap. People don't really understand how important it is. You know, you go into all this trouble hiring someone, how important it is to put the care and effort into, into onboarding them so that they can be effective quickly and then take root inside the organization. Not only that, Jake, but like a question also you could ask is, why don't we invest in manager training? And there's something there around, yeah, we don't know that we need to do that. We sort of think people should figure it out themselves. We don't have the time, which means we don't make the time. And um, 
there's just a feeling of like it's the sort of important but not urgent that gets that gets put off time and time again and then people are left to kind of figure it out for themselves and there's a massive cost to that yeah that's it's just like i mean uh, onboarding and training a good leader is a force multiplier totally that makes 10 people on their team better Verse, you know, just that. And I, I, I really feel like, you know, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation and you can, you can relate to this. Um, you know, we're putting together a statement of work for a company, big company, um, post IPO. And, you know, it, you know, we we're revamping our current onboarding plan for a frontline. Great. Awesome. Happy to help you with that. And then how are we thinking about revamping like the kind of like up leveling of the leaders to coach to this process? Yeah. Like we've thought about that. It's like, Oh God. <laughs> Like I, right. I can design the most amazing onboarding plan for a sales organization for all different types of roles. But if you don't couple that with leadership management and how to coach to this person, um, it just all goes out the window. Uh, you know, how do you think about like coaching in, in like the, this startup fap, like rapid growth kind of going from, you know, startup to grown up world? Like, you know, where does, you know, we talk about training, but where does coaching fit in for you in terms of, you know, when you talk to teams about being better coaches or implementing a coaching mindset, is that a part of the conversation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, really, you should be thinking about coaching all around you and everyday coaching. Training is actually super useful. You're showing people how to do things. Coaching is helping people think for themselves, using questions to evoke responses, helping people remind themselves of what they already know, but they don't give themselves uh, the time and space to talk it through. And then when a manager is a coach, there's also a relationship there that helps the employee and the, and the manager have a, good, have a good connection, and which is very, very sticky for, um, it's very sticky for employees to have a good relationship with their managers. And so coaching promotes that and supports that and also teaches people and I should say grows people, both their capacity and also their skill level. That's right. And the skill level thing is a big one. I think, especially in the world I come from, from sales, we intertwine giving advice versus coaching. And the two couldn't be further from the truth, right? right? We give advice on deals. We give advice on these things. That's not coaching. That's, that I, that's enabling and making sure that you're going to have the exact same thing happen over and over again. If you continue yeah, so to, true. you know, you do that. And I've been guilty of it too. It's like, why does this rep keep coming? Like they're hitting quota, but man, they come to me. I'm like, oh, because I kept giving them all the answers. And exactly. So I, I nurtured, so I nurtured dependency is how I describe it, where I'm like, yes. oh, oh, shoot. Like now, now I've got to untangle this and okay, no, right. like you go. You go do it. It's such a it's such a timely topic. I think as a lot of leaders, candidly, they're just not getting the development that they used to. Um, you know, as a part of this, and another topic that, that I know you talk a lot about that I'm always interested in, um, outside of just kind of the leadership, leadership development, onboarding, is uh, corporate politics. You know, and social capital. I think that these are two things that you talk about, and I'm I'm fascinated. I've always I've always not been very good at corporate politics. You know, it's part of why I, I'm like. It's why, you know, I started my own consulting company. I'm a very, I'm like very good at the work, but I'm also like very fireable in terms of my, 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 my <laughs> lack of skill, my lack of skill at politics. I think I've improved yeah. it, you know, over the years, but I still don't think politics and that is, is a, a strength of mine. What, you know, like when you took, when you coach people on politics and social capital within an org, like what are some of like the, the common themes that you see and what are some ways that you coach people to, um, you know, really 
embrace it as, as, as not a negative. And I think that that's it, right? It comes across, it's such a negative of like politics. We hear that like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not brown, you know, brown nose or whatever. Like, how, how do you think about corporate politics and how do you make it more approachable or actionable for people to, you know, to be better at that or at least navigate and again, build that social capital internally? Yeah, it's such a great question. People do see absolutely that politics is negative. So they say, oh, I don't play politics. And I'm sort of saying, well, I want you to be successful. That's like first and foremost. And second of all, if you have good ideas, which I hope you do, I want you to get them successfully sold in to the people who need to hear them. That's it. If that's politics, then I guess I'm guilty of politics. You want to think about politics as the positive kind, which is building the relationships around you, building a reputation of credibility and confidence and um, just a friendly, good person to deal with and be continuing to help other people. And then when you need them, they will help you. If that's politics, I'm guilty of politics. That's such a good way to put it. I think, yeah, for me in particular, it's that mindset. And I think I used to have the, like a, a, I think it's like a, a poor mindset about it, I guess is the right word that, um, you know, you need to get things accomplished. You know what I mean? Verse, um, you know, like I, like I'm doing this thing and playing and, you know, you can choose to play the game how you want to play it. You know, you don't have to, you know, placate or do those things and, you know, find an organization that rewards that. Yes, you know? exactly. You've got to figure out what's going on in your organization, and then you've got to do the things that make sense inside of your organization. And if you don't like what's going on there, that's great. Find another opportunity. I totally mm-hmm. agree because you want to be in a place that you can be successful. But the other thing is, you know, I, I sometimes think of also politics as like the similar to positive feedback. So one of my massive recommendations to everybody is give more positive feedback. Give more positive feedback. It's free. It takes two seconds. It's like the it's like the biggest bang for your buck ever, anywhere, ever. But people say, well, I don't want to just, you know, compliment them for coming in on time. And first of all, I'm like, well, first of all, why not? What's the problem with that? But second right. of all, the truth is that like all day, every day, they're doing something good. Whether it's like, oh, good spreadsheet or, oh, good meeting you ran or whatever. What is wrong with having those words come out of your mouth? I promise you, you get so much return in terms of loyalty and motivation. But people are just kind of funny about it based on their back, their backgrounds and their baggage and, and whatnot. But I would always encourage everybody just be very fact-based, like, What's going on around here? Huh, I will get more of my employees if I just say what's actually in my mind, which is good job on this. And I need to navigate in a certain way around here to get the things that I think are important done. It's just facts. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a really powerful way to think about it, I think, for a lot of people. And empowering and actionable, too, which is, again, you don't have to view it with this like negative light. And it's a good, good refresher for me, too. Um, and so, you know, I've got a few more questions as we kind of, you know, start to, to, to wrap up a little bit here. Um, you know, some of these other, you know, we've talked a little bit about feedback, coaching, politics, a lot of this. Um, you know, talk about, you know, I obviously talk about personal brand and maybe you can talk about that in terms of social capital too. Like why, like why do people care? I have my own reasons. I'll give my take after you. But um, like what, like personal brand, I think for a lot of people is like, well, I don't like taking selfies and you know, uh, you know, uh, talking about myself, I was raised in the Midwest too. And I, I'm sure my parents just, you know, murdered it into me of like, you don't talk about yourself. That's bragging, you know? And so I know a lot of people grow up, not, it's not even imposter syndrome. I feel like it's, that is it for a lot of people, but it's like, 
that's just how you're raised sometimes. And, and why do you feel like developing a strong personal brand? You know, and you talk about this topic is, is also important, you know, as a part of this, you know, growing up process. Yes, exactly. You know, I just saw on Twitter, someone said, talking about your personal brand is cringy. So I, you're not alone. People find it cringy. And yet personal brand is simply what people say about you when you're not in the room. And however mm-hmm. you want to make sure that what they're saying about you, let's just assume is the truth. Let's assume it's positive things and it's also the truth. Then you have to help people narrate your own story. And that can be about, you know, to your point about bragging, what I tell my clients all the time is, how about if you don't brag? How about if you just express the facts, which is, I completed this project, I brought these people together, and um, this is my my other accomplishment was this. It's just a fact, not a brag. And at the same time, when you are telling your manager those things, your manager is relieved because now they're like, they know what you're doing. They don't have to wonder, wonder what you're doing and worry about it. When you tell your employees, people who report into you, they're proud of you. And employees actually want to take pride in their work and pride in their manager. So you have to think that not just are you narrating the truth, but you're actually doing a favor to other people by showcasing and communicating about what you're up to. Yeah, I, I think that that's, and again, like you said, speak the fact. And, and the word that I use that can be helpful is, and it's very similar, as I said, what if I replace the word brand with reputation? That mm-hmm. you have a digital and physical reputation, whether you want one or not. And, you know, it's like, you know, and I, I say about like building a brand and I'll just use LinkedIn. I say, let me ask you this. If I, if I got you a room full of 30 people that are VPs of operations or whoever you sell into and or communicate with or your company is their target, and I said, hey, I'll give you a five-minute speaking spot to this group. Would you fly, you know, two hours to go speak to that group? Probably. Well, guess what? When you have a person, like, whenever you connect to people and grow your network digitally, posting about certain topics, again, that you want to be known for is the same thing. And we've just got to get comfortable, especially people that didn't grow up with social media, that social media is not for kids. It is you have a digital reputation it exists. So I can Google your well name. How, Google your name. It's crazy to me how many people, executives, senior people like, do you know what shows up when I Google your name? It's your Instagram page. And it's not I mean, <laughs> like, it is what it is. Like, it's cool. Like, and I always tell people that, like, look, you can be want to be known for whatever you want. Just be conscious. You know, like, I don't care if you want to be known for, you know, taking pictures on the beach or food. Great. Fantastic. Do it. Um, But just be conscious of like that. That's your that's what your reputation says when I look your name up. Totally agree. Well, very well said. Yeah. So that's that's my big part of it. All right. So uh, wrapping up here. So you've got a TEDx talk coming up. Tell me what this is going to be about. Give us a sneak peek into what you're thinking for this this talk. So obviously we'll link to the book. Everyone go check out the book. I think, look, it doesn't really matter if you are a founder or not. If you are in a company that's growing and scaling and you want to help people, uh, you want to help the organization, um, this is a book for you to where you can go and read this and really get different both tactical and strategic insight into things that you can do to help to grow the organization as well. So we'll definitely link to the book. Please take a look at it, everyone, for sure. Um, and the TEDx talk. Talk to me about that. What, what's the? Tell me the topic. Maybe you're still working through it a little bit, but what do you? Like, tell me a little bit about the the plan. 
Thank you for asking. I'm actually, uh, I have upcoming two talks. One is in two weeks in Amsterdam at The Next Web, TNW. Yeah, no, that's a great the TED, one. The TED of Amsterdam or of um, Europe. And it's about imposter syndrome and how to embrace your inner gremlins. That I'm like working on right now. And I'm very excited about showcasing to the world tools that you can use to get over your own imposter syndrome and to build... Um, to build your own capacity, really. And the second one, the TEDx right, talk. Before you, go, in, before you go on, though, okay, go uh, give us yeah. a couple of the tools. What are a couple of <laughs> things for people listening? Like, what are some of the tactical things that you've seen? And maybe just one. You can just do a tease I'm going to give you, okay, I'm going to give you yeah. a tease right now. The number one tool I would suggest to everybody, if you have imposter syndrome, is to gather evidence of your competence. So what that means is you build a highlight reel. Think about your challenges in your past that you've overcome, Think about how you overcame them and write them down, like physically write them down. Read them every morning and that reminds you of your greatness and that will fill you with good energy, which will give you more confidence and capacity to do things, which will continue to build your own confidence in your own abilities. You are not where you are because of luck. You deserve to be there. I love that. Build your own highlight reel. Highlight reel. You're not there because of luck. Great. Okay. All right. So next topic. I won't make you tease this one because I know it's in September. That's right, in September. So I'm doing a TEDx talk in uh, Italy, and it is on the topic of how to disagree. And um, my observation is that when people disagree with each other, they get very quickly heated. They distance themselves from someone they disagree with. At the worst case, they cancel people they disagree with. And we will never be able to solve the world's challenges and explore problems in their fullness and robustness and nuance if we can't have conversations and tolerance for people who disagree with us. Mm. Very timely. Very, very timely, especially with organizations when you have those um, you know, differences or different personality types that tend to clash. Um, you know, that idea of taking a step back. I had a, a few guys on the podcast um, yesterday, whenever that, that, that airs. Um, and we talked about exactly what you said, which is, you know, appreciating the differences. And the thing that they talked about is listening. Is that yes. listening is the superpower. Listening is the, and the ability to not seek to be understood, but seek to understand. Um, Beautifully said. And I think I'm, yeah, I mean, I definitely stole that from somebody, but, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good one at a time like this. So this is great. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. Um, I hope all of you did as well too. Like I said, I'm going to put some different links in the show notes, uh, for you all to check out the book, check out the amateur rap, obviously. Um, and I'll go ahead and I'll treat, I'll see if Tyler can find the link and we'll put some, for those of you who haven't signed up, the next web is a fantastic conference. Um, if there's still tickets left for that. Um, and really appreciate you joining us. I think the audience is going to get a ton out of this and have a lot of takeaways. So, so super appreciated. Thank you so much, Jake, for having me. I love this chat. Awesome. All right. Thank you. And thank all of you for joining us. And we'll see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of the Jake Dunlap Show. Uh, really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are the success the trials and errors and i hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and make sure more than anything to go over to jakedunlap.com that's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests additional details 
prep notes. We're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com. So go ahead, go over there. You can subscribe there as well, too. And we will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show.